Well, morning everyone. It's really lovely to see you. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, I'm Mark. I uh, do a number of things around here, one of which is teach and help us think about God and how we connect with God and learn to live a great life. Um, so that's what I'm going to do now. Uh, while I teach, it'll be helpful if you learn. I don't have any control over that. <laughs> I'll do my best uh, if you do your best, and together hopefully we'll do this work and it'll be useful for us all. Um, so we'll do that. The other thing to say is... Um, uh, helping Joel in this way would be great, and it's very fitting for the topic of today's uh, sermon, which is all about incarnating the love of Jesus. So uh, the spiritual practice of um, making the love of Jesus real in this world. So these are the practices we're looking at. If you've been tracking along with us at all, we are uh, exploring what it means to actually do the things that will help us grow uh, and connect with God and live a great life. We've made this point uh, repeatedly, and I'll keep making it. Nobody ever watched their way to greatness. Uh, you will not become a person who is like Jesus Christ simply by sitting and watching others live as Christians in front of you. It doesn't work that way. Uh, it would be nice if it did, but it doesn't. We've got to practice. You've actually got to put the work in with God to become a person who is able to live the way Jesus would live your life were he living it in your place. And uh, this is the whole point, that we live with Jesus in the kingdom of the heavens. And uh, we've been tracking through these practices um, worship, opening ourselves to God, relinquishing the false self, sharing my life with others, hearing God, which is what we looked at last week. And today we're looking at this practice of incarnating the love of Jesus. So um, what does that mean? Well, very simply, it means things like digging into your bank account and releasing some money so that a brother who has had a kidney transplant and can't afford the taxi fare to and from the hospital and doesn't have a full-time carer who can drive him there uh, can actually get to and from the hospital without putting himself at risk on public transport. Uh, what a great, simple, practical little thing we can do. And if you have more time than money or as much time as you have money or just can make some time, you could speak to us and you could go pick Joel up from his place in Concord at 7 in the morning, getting into, getting, get him into RPA for his 7.30 a.m. appointment, and you could still get to work um, by 8, depending where you worked, certainly 8.30. Uh, that would work, right? So, And then you could, if you've got time during the day, you could organize to pick him up. So there's a variety of super practical things we can do to make the love of Jesus real, to incarnate it. And... Um, uh, that's just by way of an intro. I'm going to pray and ask God to help us to uh, listen and learn and put into practice what we hear. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us. Uh, and as we enter this Advent season, we enter a season where we reflect on your coming to us, your incarnating, your being, your setting up a tent in our backyard so that we can uh, live in in your family home forever and uh, so now speak to us and open our hearts to what you have to say amen 
Um, here's a Bible reading. It's one of my favorite, and um, I'll, I'll give you a, a trigger warning comes with this. If you don't like seeing blokes crying, uh, I, I often cry when I think about this passage, and it'll become clear why. Um, and, and I don't cry a lot, but this is one of the passages that, I, as I think about it, it's so profound and beautiful and challenging. Uh, when one of the Pharisees... Now, by the way, Pharisees uh, get a bad rap. They're often the baddies in our contemporary Christian circle. In fact, there's a book just been published of essays looking at how, uh, but how wrong that is, but how also the way Pharisees are perceived in the church and have been presented is, has actually fueled the fires of anti-Semitism in the church. So Pharisees are bad, Jesus is good, Jews are bad, Christians are good, let's kill the Jews. That's the line that can be drawn. And it's a, a wrong line because the Pharisees, while they, while they have conflict with Jesus, they're not bad people. They're actually, they're actually really religious people who are doing their best with what they've got to live a life that pleases God, to avoid sin and avoid uh, being turfed out of the promised land again. My hunch is, if you and I were alive in Israel uh, before the coming of Jesus, many of us would have been Pharisees because many of us are serious about God. So they weren't bad people. I mean, they did some stuff that Jesus got stuck into them for because he wanted to show them that there was a different and better way to enter the kingdom of heaven than by uh, strict observance of the law. But don't for a moment think, oh, they're bad and I'm not like them. Because you are. And I am. And so Jesus speaks to us. There we go. That's the first point. When one of the Pharisees, person like you and me, trying to make life work, super religious, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life. Now, we don't, they don't go into details about sin, but we can guess it was probably sexual sin. That was often the thing that was known about a person. This was a woman who, you know, she was a loose woman or whatever it was. So that's, that's a possibility. Um, quite, a, quite a likely possibility. Anyway, she was known for her sin. What a thing to be known for. Um, and she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Her entire life savings. This was a superannuation in a jar, right? And often your perfume, very expensive, and would be passed on from generation to generation. It was your super, it was your family capital, uh, it was everything she had. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. It's a little weird, but beautiful but weird, but beautiful if you really understand what's going on. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. 
Now, that's a reasonable thing to think for a Pharisee, right? Like you are... Imagine if you claimed to be more accurate at detecting the coronavirus than the most accurate PCR test. You were known in the community as a walking, talking diviner of uh, COVID positiveness. And you're at dinner, and someone comes in, and uh, and you and 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 everyone and she and they're coughing and splattering, and everyone in the room knows they're COVID positive, but you don't pick it up and say anything. And everyone's like, "But I thought you could detect if someone was COVID positive." Okay, so that's what's going on for Jesus. He's a teacher. He's a prophet, and they're like, "Surely, surely, he would know that she's a sinner." And knowing that she was a sinner. There is no way he would let her do something as intimate and inappropriate and ritually defiling as touching his feet with her hair. I mean, hair, it's very, it's an intimate gesture, almost, almost erotic in its intimacy. Women's hair was regarded as powerfully erotic. It still is in the Middle East. That's why Orthodox women, Jewish women, cover their hair. That's why many women in the Middle East cover their hair, because women's hair is powerful, very powerful. And so if Jesus understood that this sinful woman was doing this intimate erotic thing, and, and that her sin, her she was going to defile the prophet. No good, upstanding Jewish man would let a woman who wasn't his wife touch her, let alone this, let alone a woman who was renowned for her sin. And so Jesus answers him and says, Simon, we now know the Pharisee's name, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? <laughs> Isn't that great? I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman. Isn't this interesting? He's looking at the woman now. And he's speaking to Simon. Do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you didn't give me any water for my feet which he should have done. This was a, in all his concern with religiosity and have, having everything right. The Pharisee had, had failed to exercise basic hospitality to Jesus. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. So, so hey, hey, Simon... You didn't get who I was, and you didn't show basic hospitality to me, but she did. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. I mean, she, she knew how much she needed Jesus to forgive her. And she knew that she was a mess. And so when Jesus forgave her, her response to him was extraordinary, extravagant, 
flagrantly violating all kinds of existing social conventions because she loved him so much, because he had done so much for her. Um, you know, this was a guy who allowed her to touch him without wanting to take advantage of her. <laughs> this was a, a high-status rabbi at a schmancy, fancy dinner party who included her and drew her in and then said her sins are forgiven while everyone else in the town looked at her with judgment and said, what you've done excludes you from God, excludes you from community, excludes you from any possibility of ever really being loved. Jesus says, no, it's, it's wiped clean. You're set free from your past. You have a future. You have hope. You have a community of life and of love. Now, wouldn't that's why she loved him with this extravagant act of love. So what does that have to say about incarnating the love of Jesus? Well, it says uh, there's, there's a bunch of things we can say, but for us, you can see, I think there are three steps because we see in this act of Jesus for her this powerful, tangible example of what incarnate love of God when God comes to earth and, and brings the kingdom of God to this world and shows us what a truly great life is. This is what it looks like. So what do we see? Three steps. We've got to receive, we've got to see, and we've got to serve. The first thing we've got to do like that woman, if we are to help other people know how much God loves them tangibly, if we are to have the courage to include outsiders, to give our lives away for, for others and serve them, the first thing we've got to do is receive love and forgiveness ourselves from God. Incarnating the love of Jesus, serving others, loving others, doesn't start from a position of moral superiority. Well, I have all the answers, and uh, I can see that you need a whole lot of love. <laughs> you need to be served, so let me come and serve you, because I have my life together, and you clearly don't. God is on my side, he's not on your side, so let me show you how you should live. Like... We are only ever two starving people, one of whom has found an eternal banquet, bringing another person to that banquet. That's what we are. We're only ever someone dying of thirst in the desert, finding an oasis of eternal life and, and, and bringing others to drink from that same uh, well of life. To, to incarnate, to make the love of Jesus real in the world, the first thing to do is for me to receive the forgiving, including healing love of Jesus in my life. Now, that's really easy to do, isn't it? Hence the question we asked at the start. Well, how have you experienced the love of God in your life? Well, it's not easy to do. I want to suggest... 
it's not easy to do at all to receive the love of God in our lives. I'll tell you why. Maybe you can guess why. I'll tell you why it's hard, right? Well, I think it's hard. Uh, I'm proud. I don't want to admit that I need God. And here's the thing about how do I receive the love of God. Well, mostly, most tangibly, how I receive the love of God is through what? I receive the love of God through other people. How is the love of God most tangibly made accessible to us? It's through other people. Now, here's my problem. I don't want you to know my sin and my brokenness and my need. Uh, And I I live in the delusion that you don't. I mean, it's a delusion because mostly you can see who I am. And I don't want to have to, I don't want to receive from you because if I receive from you, it means I'm needy and I'm vulnerable. And it means I'm indebted to you. There's this thing called the law of reciprocity that is a key tool in all marketing efforts. And the law of reciprocity is hardwired into us. And what it says is, if I give you something, even if you don't ask for it, you feel an obligation to give something to me. So whenever you go into a store or whenever you're online and someone gives you something, just realize they're manipulating you and they're going to try and sell you something. And you're hardwired to respond with a sense of obligation. They've given me this, so even if I didn't ask for it, I'm going to be more, I'm going to feel obligated to give something to them. And we hate that. Because we're proud and we're independent. So I don't want to have to be indebted to you. I don't want I don't want to have to be vulnerable and humble to receive. And in, and in our culture, particularly in this part of Sydney, we really value not needing other people, don't we? But unless I receive what will happen is as I try to incarnate the love of God, what I'm going to end up doing is actually just, oh, actually I'm going to end up oppressing the person I'm trying to help. (laughs) I'm going to fall into the trap of what one author has called the tyranny of experts. Okay, the tyranny of experts, a great book on global development and how we have this tyranny of First world experts, we've worked out what the poor need. So from our position in the World Bank and IMF and UN institutions and government institutions in New York and Washington, D.C., we can sit as experts and we can see what everybody needs and we can help them. And, and you know, we, we can do that in our lives from our... This is the tyranny of well-meaning, proud, defensive, graceless Christianity. I know what you need. Let me tell you what you need. The only antidote to that is is you and I continually knowing that we are are very much 
very much in need of the forgiveness of Jesus. We need to receive God's love and grace in our own lives because I'm a mess and you're a mess. I'm sinful in ways that I don't yet know, but as God peels the onion back and shows me layers of selfishness and idolatry that I didn't even imagine were there, I'll discover how much I need him. So we've got to receive, and that's hard. The Bible says we love because he first loved us, and we can never forget that. The moment we forget that, Grace goes out of our efforts to incarnate the love of God and it becomes about ourselves and about pride and about control, about our expertise. And we don't really serve people. We're not incarnating the, the love of the God who emptied himself of everything so that he could serve us. But then we've got to see. Now, look at the first thing that... Um, Jesus says, after this woman, after he's told this little story to Simon, and Simon's gone, yeah, the person who's been forgiven much is going to love much. Look at what he asks. He says to Simon, do you see this woman? Now, of course, we know that Simon has seen her. Because the story says, like, he knew that this woman was, he knew exactly who she was. So what is Jesus saying there? Well, one level, he's just saying, do you see her? But there's something way more profound going on. Um, Jesus is saying to Simon, do you really see her? Do you see her as a whole person? Or do you just see her as her sin? What do you see, Simon? What do you see? He just sees her as an embarrassing, defiling, inconvenience, interruption to, her, to his dinner party. Someone to, he sees her as someone to be avoided. He sees her as a collection of her actions that exclude her. That's what he sees. He doesn't he doesn't see her. How does Jesus see her? Jesus sees her as a glorious, magnificent, extraordinary being made in the image of God who is full of dignity and value and worth, who has made a terrible mess of her life but has received grace from God and whose life is now exploding with love. <laughs> That's what Jesus sees. Uh, if I'm to incarnate the love of Jesus in the world, I've got to, I've got to see people. I've got to answer that question when Jesus says, what do you, you know, see this woman. Um, you see, we all are tempted to see people the way the Pharisee, Simon sees people, aren't we? Like, I mean, even this morning, here's a challenge for you, right? I mean, how many people here are you going to really see? See them as who they are. See, we, we very often see people as mirrors, 
not as souls. We see them as mirrors, not as souls. What do I mean by that? Most often when I see other people, I see them and how I see them is shaped entirely by how they affect me. I see them as a mirror of myself. Do you like me? Can you do something for me? Are you annoying? Are you irritating? Do you make me feel uncomfortable? Do you fill me with joy? Do you fill me with disgust? Can you do something for me? I see you as a mirror into what I want to see. And Jesus says to Simon, you've got to see her as a soul. You've got to see that, that underneath this mess of a past that she has is, a, is an exquisite child of God whose heart is exploding with love because she's been forgiven much. Who do you see? How do you think God sees you? How does God really see you? Well, this is the amazing thing. God sees you the same way Jesus saw that woman. He sees you as a soul. He sees you as a person. He sees you in all your glory and in all your mess. And he sees you in a way that no one sees you and he loves you. That's how God sees you. How do you see others? And, and this is really helpful, right? Because incarnating the love of Jesus is about seeing and responding to the one. When we think about loving people, we can get overwhelmed by thinking, oh, I've got to address all the problems of everyone in the world, and that's far too hard. So you don't have to. Don't, you don't have to start. You can't solve the problems of the world. But what you can do is start by receiving the love of God yourself and then seeing the one who's there. Ask God to see who's in front of you. Really see them. That takes time. It takes vulnerability. It takes a willingness not to put people in a box. It takes a willingness to see past their accumulated mess and hurt and habits and hang-ups, perhaps past their ethnicity or their religious background, to see them. Um, isn't that interesting? We're whole, magnificent beings. And the final thing we've got to do then is we've got to serve them. Like once I've, once I've received and once I've seen you, you've then got to go, okay, how do I use my energy, my gifts, my abilities to meet your real needs? Because this is love. This is what God does for you. That's what we're to do for others. And that's going to look different all the time, isn't it? Like, there's no cookie cutter for incarnating the love of Jesus. You say, well, what, is, what does this look like? Well, I don't, it depends. It depends on who you are. But the goal of spiritual formation of these practices is to become the kind of person where it is your second nature to be continually receiving the love of God, continually seeing people through the eyes of Jesus, and then as an act of second nature, starting to join the dots between what have, what have I got, what resources have I got that can actually be mobilized to meet the needs of the person that I see in front of me. 
And that's not easy to do, right? <laughs> like, actually serving someone is hard. Let me give you an example. Um, uh, well, I don't know, gosh, just pick serving anyone. It's just hard to know what to do, right? Like, what do they really need? Are you just enabling them? Um, someone asks you for money, should you give it to them? Are they, are they going to waste it? If someone asks, you know, who knows? Um, if we kick in money for Joel to get a cab to the hospital, is that, just re is that really our responsibility? I mean, surely the hospital social work department should be able to figure something out. Are we just enabling an underfunded New South Wales Department of Health? I mean, maybe. But maybe not. Maybe it's a really good thing. My hunch is it's a really good thing. But even in that fairly obvious thing, you could run a counter-argument to come up with an alternate way of serving. Maybe someone who lives close to the RPA should take him in and offer him a room for the next month. I mean, there's many things. It's complicated, right? Like, it's not, it's not obvious. What, what should we do? And, and by the way, this is not just first person you must serve or I must serve. It gets even more complicated when we think, well, what do we do as a community, as a body? How do we serve? How do we meet the real needs of people? in the way that God has met our needs. I'll, I'll tell you, it, you see why seeing someone is really important? Because <laughs> you've got to see them as a whole person so you can actually see what they need. And then you've got to be in dialogue with them and you've got to come humbly alongside of them. This is what God does to us. He doesn't serve us from heaven, which he could have done. Presumably God could have stayed out of our messy world hanging out there in the kingdom of God, sipping celestial gin and tonics, looking down at the world and occasionally just sending down bolts of something. But he actually came down alongside us. And that's what serving is. You come down alongside someone, you say, how can I meet your needs with what I have? So here's a practice. Something you can do every day. Start every day with an act of receiving the love of God. It's in prayer, read the Bible devotionally, pray and say, Jesus, I'm, I'm a mess. I need your love and forgiveness. Never go a day without reminding yourself how much you need God's love and grace. And then each day say to God, help me to see, to really see someone the way you do. Just one person. Just one person. I mean, you could do this after, uh, while we sit around having morning tea and coffee. You could, how do I actually see someone with the eyes of Jesus? And then at the end of the day, you, you could r keep a little note, make a little journal, and say, who did I see today? What did I see? And start to practice seeing. You know? Um, when you go and get your coffee tomorrow morning and there's someone behind the machine, you go, hmm, now this could get a little weird. Okay, so you don't want to be weird. But you could just look at them and go, hmm, what do I see? When you talk to your colleague at work and they're driving you nuts for the umpteenth time they've let you down and they're annoying and you're having to pick up and you know the can for them, instead of just thinking of them as lazy and dysfunctional, Think, what's, what, what's really going on for them? What do I see? What do I see?
You can train yourself as you do that, by the way, to ask yourself when, when you're encountering a really difficult person, one of the practices, the habits you can get into is to train yourself to think to yourself, not what's wrong with them, but what's happened to them. Don't ask, no, what's wrong? Well, I, I want to see what's wrong with you. You ask yourself, well, what's happened to them? How do I see what's happened to them? The trauma and the pain and the brokenness in their past that's causing them to act in this way. And when you see that, you know, you start to be in a place to serve them. So the discipline of receive every day and just ask God to help you see and then keep a note of what you've seen. And then it's hard, but you can start figuring out together how to serve and to keep that dialogue alive. But just start with the first two and God will nudge you along the line of serving. Because if you're open to really seeing people, you will find the Spirit of God will nudge you to serve and then we will be nudged to serve. So that's the, that's the goal, to receive, to see, to serve. Lord Jesus, um, thank you that you have, you have uh, come to forgive us and to bless us and to heal us and to restore us and to give us life and to welcome us into the kingdom of heaven. And you don't see us as a collection of what we've done wrong, of our sin, of our brokenness, of our inadequacies, of our failings and our flaws. You see us as glorious, beloved, wonderful, exquisite beings who uh, are worthy of nothing but your love and your life. Help us to see ourselves that way and to see everyone we meet that way. And uh, I pray for us as a church that in this Advent season, we will, in each of us in our own little ways, uh, follow you in incarnating that love into the lives of the people close to us. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.